Let's turn together to Nehemiah chapter 8. At the beginning of our time in this book, Nehemiah chapter 1, we ask the question, how does revival start? And as we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1, we saw that this revival began with one man weeping over his sins and the sins of the people. It started with confession and repentance. We saw that it started with a simple belief in the promise of God. Now, we're seven chapters in, about to, about to enter into Nehemiah chapter 8, and I think it would be important for us to ask this question, maybe we should have answered at the very beginning, what is revival anyway? We want revival, we want to know how it starts, but what even is revival in the first place? If I'm going to go hunting for something, I better know what that something looks like before I go out into the woods with a gun to shoot it. I think there are a lot of churches out there that are hunting for revival, but then when they invite you to come into their church home and they want to show you this beautiful stag that they have shot, you go and you look up on the wall and they have a squirrel head mounted on the wall for you to see. We have to know what revival is before we can pursue and pray for it. I want to give a helpful definition from J.I. Packer. He says, Revival is an extraordinary work of God the Holy Spirit reinvigorating and propagating Christian piety in a community. And there's several big words in there, but the first thing that I want us to notice in this definition is that revival, he says, first and foremost, is a work of God the Holy Spirit. Which begs the question, if revival is the Spirit's work, is there anything that we can do to bring it about? And we'll get to that shortly. Secondly, I want us to notice the word that he uses. It's an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. Revival is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. In her book, Praying Together, Megan Hill explains, Extraordinary here does not mean new or different, but simply greater in measure and in degree. So revival is where the Spirit does what He's already doing and has been doing, except for He does it simply in greater measure. When we pray for revival, Hill says, Our gracious God delights to answer our petition with another generous ladling of the Spirit into our churches and our communities. So this morning, in Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to see what revival is anyway. So we know what it is we're pursuing and what it is we're praying for. Because I'd hate for us to be one of those churches bragging about the 12-point buck on our wall and everyone comes to see and finds a squirrel head mounted in our church. So, if you haven't already, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And let's stand together as we marvel at the extraordinary work of God. 
Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Melshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akuv, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the court of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua the son of Nun to, the day of the, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray, press these words into our hearts. Enable me to explain clearly your word. 
so that your people can believe and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The revival of Nehemiah chapter 8 feels out of place. This is the kind of story we expect to read in a book like Acts. Men preaching the word, people experiencing conviction, rejoicing in the good news, seeking the Lord, living lives of obedience. But Nehemiah is in the Old Testament. And the normal MO for the Old Testament Israelites is to close their ears to the words of God and live lives of complete disobedience following after false gods. It's not that the stuff here in Nehemiah chapter 8 is out of the ordinary. It's just out of place in the Old Testament. We don't expect it here. This is revival. Five ordinary works of the Holy Spirit poured out in extraordinary measure. So let's look at these five extraordinary works of the Spirit in turn. Number one, we see a greater hunger for the Word. A greater hunger for the Word. Nehemiah tells us on the first day of the seventh month, the people came, verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So the chapter begins, all the people with singularity of heart and mind, with only one objective, one burning hunger deep in the pit of their souls. And it's not to sing music a certain style. It's not for their kids to have fun and to do lots of uh, interesting crafts or to jump on a trampoline or a bouncy house. It's not to be seen by others. It's not in order to rub shoulders with other pillars of the community. They are drawn together as one man, unified in their great hunger for the word. They tell Ezra with one voice, bring out the book. Bring it out. Read it to us. We want it. We are hungry for the word of the Lord. Not just words. We spend all week, we spend our entire lives with our souls being filled with the empty words of man. We want the word of the Lord. We want to hear the word of the eternal, truthful, righteous, promise-keeping, compassionate, almighty, all-knowing, ever-present, redeeming Lord. Number one, revival is characterized by a greater hunger for the word. And look at how they listen to the word. Nehemiah tells us they stood in the square from early morning until midday. Four hours standing there, listening to the preaching of the word. How many of us struggle to make it even through a one hour service? Standing while Ezra opens the book, verse 6. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. 
these Israelites realized that listening is an act of worship. Listening to the preaching of the Word of God is of itself an act of worship. We worship the Lord as we give our ears to His Word. As the people stood in the square and a man was reading from the book of the law and explaining it to them, the very hunger of the depths of their soul was fed through their ears. But also look at the preaching. Yeah, that's, that's what Ezra is doing here. He's preaching. He's standing, did you see, on a wooden platform that's made for the occasion, a.k.a. a pulpit, right? That's what we call it. <laughs> and he's standing there, and Ezra's reading the Word, and as he's reading the Word, there are multiple preachers throughout the crowd that are explaining the meaning of each line to the people. Look at verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, plainly, clearly, distinctly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is what people might call expository preaching. This is what I just call preaching. Because there really is no other kind of preaching other than the reading of God's word and the explaining of it and the pressing of it home to the people of God. Giving the sense, reading it clearly, explaining it to the people, showing them how to press it into their hearts and lives so that they understand the reading. The people are assembled as one man. They've come to the square and they are hungry for one thing. And so Ezra doesn't ascend to that pulpit with some inspirational stories from his life. He doesn't come into that pulpit speaking from the platform to the people with some nice self-help tips. Ezra comes with the book to feed the people the word because they have a great hunger for this and this alone. Number one, greater hunger for the word. But as we've said, revival is an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. So how on earth can we engender in ourselves a greater hunger for the word if that's what the Spirit's job is? Is there anything that we can do? I don't feel a desire for the word. I don't really care about listening to preaching. I don't have a hunger to hear the Lord speak to me. What should I do? Well, I've got three recommendations for you. And Chad, these are the subpoints. All right, so A, pray. Ask the Spirit to awaken your ears. To hear. Ask the Lord to speak to you on Sunday as you're driving to church and throughout the week. Dear Lord, I, am, I should be hungry, but my soul does not hunger for your word. Please feed me in a way that I don't even know I need this Sunday. Pray. B, read your Bible. Read your Bible. You are not going to come to love and hunger for this book until you spend time in this book. 
That's the amazing thing about the Bible. The Bible satisfies your hunger, but it gives you a greater hunger for more of it. Read your Bibles. And then thirdly, C, go to church. Pray, read your Bible, go to church. The Sunday school answers, right? (laughs) The one thing that should draw College Street Baptist Church Sunday after Sunday after Sunday should be our great hunger for the Word. So if you don't feel a hunger for the Word, gather with other people who have that same hunger and you'll be amazed how contagious that hunger can become. When I come to College Street Baptist Church, the thing that I should feel you guys ringing out of me, grabbing me by the lapels, I should hear you saying to me through everything that you are, bring out the book. Bring it out. This is what we want. Feed us with the Word. The greatest service that we as the people of God can offer up to Him is our ears listening attentively to His Word. Because we are hungry for it. Well, the second aspect of revival this morning is a greater conviction of sin. So we have a greater hunger for His Word, but the second work of the Spirit in revival is a greater conviction of sin. Now, conviction is a fun church word. We throw that one around a lot. I think sometimes maybe we don't quite understand what it is. Conviction is not simply just crying for crying's sake. Conviction isn't just goosebumps or a certain feeling that breezes over you while you're sitting in the congregation. Think about it in secular terms. In a courtroom, a prosecuting attorney has achieved a conviction when the judge declares before the courtroom guilty. This man, this woman is guilty, has broken the law. So this is what we mean by true conviction, being declared guilty before the law of God. And this is exactly what the people experienced. Look at verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all of the people wept. As they heard the words of the law. Why are they weeping? Because they're listening to the words of the law being read over their heads. And they realize as each line is read through how guilty they really are. For four hours, a law is read. I've broken that one. And that one. And that one. And that one. And sin upon sin piles upon their conscience as God's holy law reveals all the ways that they have disobeyed and offended and sinned against the God who made them. The God who called them out of Egypt. The God who is their Lord. And the thing that they realize as they're convicted is, I am guilty before the law of God. I think so often as Christians we're embarrassed to reach this level of contrition and conviction and weeping over our own sins. 
We're afraid to allow ourselves to know the depths of how we have offended the Creator. We don't want to ponder that the Lord sees not only our actions, but even the deepest thoughts and intentions of our hearts. That He knows and He sees. Friends, we need to let the law penetrate into the deepest regions of our hearts and to search out whatever sins are found there. Because this is the paradox. The people of God are made holy through conviction. Somehow, we are made holy. We become the people of God as we realize how unworthy we are and how much we have broken His law. It's when the people are moved to great conviction that Nehemiah declares to them, this day is holy. Why? Because they feel conviction for their sin. So this morning, if you're thinking through all the things that you've done to disobey God and and you're trying to push those things out of your memory, don't do that. Allow conviction to draw you in. If you're feeling conviction this morning over your sin, don't resist it. God draws us to Himself first by showing us how desperately wicked we are without Him. Let conviction have its full effect because He makes us holy through greater and greater conviction over our sin. But if conviction is a work of God, what can I do? I can't make myself feel convicted if that's the work of the Holy Spirit. What if there's sin in my life that I don't hate? I seem to continue to return to it. And I'm not realizing how much it offends God and I'm not weeping over it like I ought to. Three simple answers. A, pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to search your heart. That's His job. To reveal sin in your life. To make you weep over sin. B, read the Bible. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's it talking about there? Conviction. You don't feel conviction? Read the Bible. You will be convicted. And God will use that to draw you closer to Himself. And thirdly, see, go to church. In my experience, people who are running from conviction generally run from the gathering of the local church. It's just the way it works. Because when you gather with the people of God, you feel conviction. Resist that. If you're feeling sin in your life and you're trying to ignore it and you find you're making excuses to not be with the people of God... You need to go be with the church so that the Spirit can do His full work of bringing full conviction to your heart and call you to repentance. Conviction is something to run towards because God is drawing us away from whatever is hell-bent on destroying you. And He's drawing you to Himself, a God who is full of love and eternal life. Our third sign of revival, number three is greater joy in the gospel. Greater joy in the gospel. 
We see in Nehemiah chapter 8 that great conviction over sin leads to greater joy in the gospel. Let me read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, Too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He who has stood before his God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around his neck, is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. The greater our conviction over sin, the greater will be our joy in the Savior. Imagine for a moment, Standing for four hours as your conviction, all the laws that you've broken are read over your head for four hours straight, all the ways that you have broken the law, every bitter thought, every evil deed, every time you lied, every sin you've committed, and over and over again the refrain is, whoever has done these things is cursed and deserves to die. And as midday approaches and you are just weeping over your sins, waiting for the judgment, the man closes the book and makes this declaration. Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Can you imagine? He says your slate is wiped clean. Your sins are forgiven. The joy of the Lord be your strength. The great hymn writer John Newton on his deathbed whispered to a friend, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. The joy of the Lord has a name. It's Jesus. Because of him, what ought to have been our judgment day was turned into a holiday. There's only one way that we can stand convicted before the law of God, deserving death, and somehow leave that place with joy and shouts of celebration. Because God has sent His Son, Jesus, down from heaven to earth to live perfectly under the law, to be convicted in our place, to hang on a cross and suffer the curse and the death that all of the breaking of the law that we did in our lives deserved. And then on the third day, to be raised victorious, simply to offer us the joy of forgiveness to everyone who repents and believes in Him. Revival is a greater conviction of sin which leads to a greater joy in the gospel. The gospel is this proclamation. Good news. Even though you deserve death, Jesus Christ has died for you so that you may have life and have joy in His name. Go, rejoice, celebrate, feast together. Repent of your sins and believe in God's incredible, impossible sacrifice for you. All debt is paid. All sins have been erased. Death has been conquered. And the law has no claim on you any longer. 
Verse 12 is what every Sunday afternoon should feel like. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were spoken to them. They realized the truth of the good news. And how much more do we now on this side of the cross recognize the joy of the Lord in the gospel? But what if the joy of the Lord isn't my strength? What if I don't feel anything towards the gospel this morning? What if Jesus is just a name to me? Well, I have three suggestions. You ought to pray. Ask the Lord to give you this joy. Ask Jesus to comfort your heart by His Spirit. If you've never repented and believed, you've never experienced this joy. Repent, pray, ask Him for forgiveness, and today you will feel that joy of the Lord, and that will become your strength. Secondly, read the Bible. The story of this book is a story of how we incurred all the wrath and judgment of God and somehow He laid it, all of our sins on Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God. And He sets us free from that burden. Read it, treasure it, and you will find the joy of the Lord. And thirdly, go to church. You know a revival is on your hands when a church is filled with people who are leaving on Sunday after Sunday, rejoicing and spending lunch and the whole afternoon together, just rejoicing in what Jesus has done and speaking to one another about the gospel and gathering week by week in each other's homes and inviting people into their homes so that they can experience what it means to be forgiven and to have the joy of the Lord as their strength. Revival number three is a greater joy in the gospel. Our fourth aspect of revival this morning. Greater seeking of the Lord. Greater seeking the Lord. Nehemiah tells us that the very next day, the second day of the month, the elders, the leaders, the chiefs of the different households, all got together, verse 13, in order to study the words of the law. When I was in college, there was this girl that I liked named Mindy. And uh, I learned about her schedule, when her classes were, where those rooms were, what time she was most likely to pass through certain parts of campus, where she ate her meals. Why was I doing that? Stalk? Yeah. I, I wanted to bump into her in those places, right? I was looking for opportunities to build relationships. So I would go to this cafeteria, not that one, because that's where she liked to eat. Or I would take a certain route to class because I knew I'd pass by a class where she might be coming out. I was intentionally seeking a relationship with her. And that's what the leaders of the people are doing here on the second day of the month. They're seeking the Lord. They're looking for Him in His Word. Pouring over the Scriptures. Looking for Him. Expecting the Lord to speak something into their lives for that day. And you know what? He does. 
He gives them the exact word that they need to hear for that exact day. Look at verse 14. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. What do you know? It's the second day of the seventh month. The Lord has told them exactly what He wants them to do today. Do you see that word? It's scattered throughout this chapter. The capital L, law. Have you seen that as we've read through? Capital L, law. And that word is the word Torah. Have you ever heard that word before? It's the word that's used for the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses. And a covenant establishes a relationship between two parties. So anytime you see in your Old Testament, capital L, law, it's referring to this specific covenant that established a relationship between the Lord and Israel. In fact, verse 14 lays it all out for us. You see it there. They found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel. So you've got these two parties the Lord and the people of Israel, and the covenant has a mediator whose name is Moses. The point I'm trying to make here is they're seeking the Lord because they have a relationship with Him. Brothers and sisters, we are no less a covenant people as the church. The Lord has established His relationship with us by the blood of His Son, Jesus, forever. It's a relationship. He sent His Son, Jesus, to establish an eternal relationship with you and with me. He sought us, and revival is us in a greater seeking of the Lord in our relationship with Him. What if every time our leaders got together, they were pouring over the Scriptures, seeking the Lord in our relationship with Him? What if all of our teams, when they met, had a deep, abiding sense of the presence of the Lord with them, and they were simply seeking to do His will? What if our money shortages wasn't an opportunity for us to come up with our own ideas, but we saw it as a chance, an opportunity to seek the Lord even more? What if emergency projects in our church wasn't an opportunity for us to see how other churches do it, but for us to simply seek the Lord? What if the lack of baptisms, the struggles in discipleship, our efforts to reach our community were not opportunities for us to simply read up on the best church growth methods? And we realize the Lord is drawing us to Himself. Seek me. Seek the Lord. What do we do if we're not Christians or a church that do seek the Lord? Well, A, we ought to pray. Because prayer is literally seeking the face of God. We talk with Him, not at Him. We talk with our Father. We talk with our Savior, the one who loves us, the one who initiated this relationship through His Son in the first place. 
Tell Him our needs. Praise Jesus for who He is, what He's doing in us, through us, and for us by His Spirit. Talk to God. I promise you it will do wonders for your relationship with Him. Side note, ladies and gentlemen, talk to your spouse. It will do wonders for your relationship as well. It's amazing how relationships improve when we simply talk to the person in the relationship with us. B. Read your Bible. Follow the example of these elders and leaders of the people. Pour over the Scriptures, seeking the Lord, expecting Him every time you get into the Word that He's going to speak today to me. Bring your Bible to team meetings. Bring your Bible to small group. Bring your Bible to Sunday school. Bring your Bible to church. Expect that anytime the people of God get together, we're going to be pouring over the Word in our relationship with the Lord. And lastly, third, thirdly, or C, go to church. God has a relationship with me personally, but God has a relationship with us collectively. And Christians, we are fooling ourselves if we think that we will seek the Lord greater outside the congregation of God's people than we will inside. Well, finally, our fifth sign of revival, number five, is greater obedience. Greater obedience. So the leaders and the elders of the people discover that even though they don't have any houses built inside the walls, even though this is the most inconvenient time to be taking a week off of work, even though their enemies are still pressing in around them, they discover that the Lord commands them to build little forts out of sticks and palm branches and to live in these temporary houses for a week and to celebrate and feast in the presence of the Lord and have a holiday. Verse 16. So, the people went out and brought, brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day the people of Israel had not done so. And there was great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day until the last, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. It is a sweet thing whenever the people of God simply obey. Nehemiah records that not since the days of Joshua had they kept this feast. A thousand years of disobedience rolls back in one day. Brothers and sisters, there is great joy in simple obedience to the Lord. We sing an old hymn here that has a simple refrain. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And yet how many times do we open our Bibles and we read the Word And the Holy Spirit pricks our hearts of exactly what we ought to do. 
but we just do our best to try to rationalize it away. Well, Jesus can't really mean that. Well, he can't expect me to do that. He must mean that for this guy. Brothers and sisters, there is joy and freedom in simply trusting what God has commanded and obeying. When God brings something to your heart or your mind, He is calling you to obedience at that specific time for a specific reason. Now, He may not show you what that reason is, but we have to be willing to simply trust Him. He may not reveal anything other than His command, but we simply trust Him. And obey. I can guarantee you the Israelites had better things to do than to go build tree forts in what was the desolation of Jerusalem. Their own houses weren't even built, and here they are building temporary little tents to live in for a week. God called them to do it, and Nehemiah records, so they did it. God was showing them that they were still sojourners. They were still temporary wanderers. You know, they had a wall around the city and eventually they would have houses and everything would sort of return back to normal. But God was reminding them, even as they came back to Jerusalem and rebuilt it, this isn't your eternal home. This is still temporary. Something better is coming. This Jerusalem is not your home. As they celebrated the Feast of Booths, God was commanding them, He commands us today, to look forward to a new Jerusalem that will one day come when our Savior and King comes back for us, Jesus Christ. As we close, how do we grow in obedience? I hope by now you already know what the answers are going to be. A, we need to pray. Ask the Spirit to show you God's will. To make it so abundantly clear what you were supposed to do that it would be foolishness to do anything other. Ask Him to give you courage and boldness to simply obey rather than rationalize things away. Number two, B, read your Bible. You can't obey God until you know His Word. You can't obey Jesus until you know what He commands you to do. So spend time reading the Bible and lastly, go to church. Do you know that it is a scientific fact that it's easier to obey in a group? There was a psychological study done in 1951, Solomon Ash performed, where he brought a subject into a room with seven other, uh, a group of seven other people. And the way that it would work is he would hold up two cards to the group, one with a line and one with three lines. And the simple question was, A, B, or C, which line matches the line on this card? And he had instructed the seven other people to intentionally choose the wrong line. And what do you know it? 33% of the time, the subject would choose the wrong answer simply because the rest of the group was choosing the wrong answer, even though it was blatantly obvious. It's called conformity. And when you're with the church full of people who are trying to obey the Word of God, it makes it so much easier for you to go along with the flock. So be with the church. Be with the people of God who are trying to obey to make it easier for you to obey the Lord. If you want to see greater obedience, go to church. What is revival? 
That's an extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit. He gives greater hunger for the Word, greater conviction over sin, greater joy in the Gospel, greater seeking the Lord, and greater obedience. It's the work of the Spirit, but we have a responsibility to pray, to read our Bible, and be with His church. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would press these truths deeply into our hearts. I pray that as accurately as I've explained your word, that the people of God would understand it and leave this place rejoicing in what Jesus Christ has done for us. God, make us this kind of a people. Holy Spirit, may your work among us be greater and greater and greater until we are consumed by revival. In Jesus' name we pray and plead. Amen.